From KVLU Public Radio, this is Bayou Lands Talks, a companion podcast where we're sharing some of our favorite conversations with a wide range of guests from the radio documentary series Bayou Lands, a program that has aired on KVLU since 2016 and explores the people and places of Southeast Texas. I'm Shannon Harris, and I co-produce Bayou Lands with Jason M. Miller. For this first episode of Bayou Lands Talks, we both chose an interview Jason did with acclaimed animator, illustrator, author, and film director Kelly Asbury. The interview was conducted in June of 2019, just one year before Kelly lost his years-long battle with cancer. Well, before we get started uh, our conversation here on Bayou Lands, um, Kelly, thanks for being here on the show. Oh, I'm happy to be here. Well, it's it's really great to connect and be able to talk a bit about uh, about your work and and uh, also um, your uh, your time here at Lamar University and and in Beaumont, Texas as well. This show kind of covers uh, other people and places of this area, and so we want to get that in. And, and so I really kind of wanted to start there. So um, so you grew up in in the Beaumont area. I grew up in the north end of Beaumont. Um, okay. On El Paso Street, my brother and sister, who were both, uh, he, they, my sister was 13 years older than me, my brother was seven years older, so we were very spaced apart, but we all attended Edwards Elementary, Bowie Junior High School, and French High School, all exactly the same. <laughs> we had many of the same teachers, even, oh, back wow. in the day. It was a long time ago now. Sure, sure. So growing up in Beaumont, um, what, what were some things that, like, um, was there anything at that particular time that kind of... Um, sparked your interest, uh, influence wise in art. And I was also kind of curious was like where you had moved into the realm of animation and feature film and, and such, was that your initial interest in, in art and your initial study or was that something that developed later? Well, I'll tell you, it's, it's kind of a multi-part story. I'll try to make it brief. My, I always grew up, I don't know. I just, I was born loving to draw. It just was something that you know, you when you're born like that, and, and I've talked to other people, you you can't explain it. I mean, there are some people who were born who just want to play the piano, uh, want to play baseball, want to do all these things. My proclivity from the day I was born was I just drew, 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 drew all the time. It's all I wanted to do. Right. And my dad and I, when I was very young, um, we would sit down with old pieces of cardboard and paper or whatever we could get a hold of and we would make up stories and we would draw pictures as we made up a story together. And I always think that that played a big role in, uh, in my sort of developing the idea of stories coupled with pictures. Okay, sure. Um, so that was kind of something that I kind of discovered later in my life in thinking about it. Just kind of wondering what, uh, what was the thing that made me, you know, so interested because you can't always put your finger on that stuff. Yeah. Um, and then I remember going to uh, the Jefferson Theater one Saturday afternoon with my brother. My mom dropped us off. Back in those days, you could drop a kid off at the movie theater and tell him you'd pick him up in an hour and uh, or two. And my brother and I saw Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs sure. in a re-release. And I remember just being so taken. It was the first time I had seen an animated anything on the big screen. I was probably six or seven, and I remember being absolutely taken by watching these drawings 
somehow coming to life and moving. And I told my brother right there in the Jefferson Theater, I said, I, I need to learn how to do this. I've got to learn how to do this. And uh, we, we stayed and watched that movie. I remember we didn't have cell phones or anything back then. And my mom came to pick us up. We ran out to the car and I said, Mom, can I watch it again? And believe it or not, my mom said, okay, my brother was older. He didn't want to watch it again. She left me alone at the theater for two more screenings of it. I just sat right through. In those days, you paid one ticket and you could stay there all day. And she picked me up later in the afternoon and said, well, did you like it? And I said, yes. And the next day after church, I talked her into letting me go see it two more times. You know, those days there was no DVD, there was no Netflix, there was no VCR, there was nothing. So if I wanted to see it, I needed, I had a window of time where they were going to take it out of theaters. So uh, that was my first foray into being fascinated with animation. And I remember just obsessing on, on trying to figure out how it was done. And there wasn't a lot of resource for that, especially at seven years old. So it took a few years for me to get a grasp of what animation is. And that's sort of the beginning of it. That's great. Yeah, like there's like a there's like a kind of a landmark movie there that was you know one that that did it. I mean, and then I mean you work for Disney, so I mean it's you know I mean it, <laughs> well that was a that was the know. goal from there on. I mean I remember I remember you know after that point I remember getting pieces of paper and the the margins of paperback books and I still have some of those where I find some little stick figures I did of you could flip the pages and make things kind of move and a bouncing ball and I learned sure. that is really the very first thing I did was draw and you flip and you see and you go okay okay I'm kind of getting it um, but I never really got it because it's funny um, animation came into a whole different thing I grew up in the 60s and it was very uh, very little information and, and very little interest I think in people wanting to know how to do it they saw the movies but animation was really just kind of this thing that either you liked it or you didn't, or you were a kid and you watched it on Saturday morning. And so I remember uh, not having a lot of resource material and going to libraries and, and really not being able to find much information. So I, I really had to kind of make up things myself. And it wasn't until uh, I was probably, probably 17 in high school and I found more books on it. And then I decided just to write Disney Studios and find out look, if I ever want to work for you, how do I do this? And that was what really started me on the path to end up at CalArts, which was a school, California Institute of the Arts, where it had been founded by Disney, and part of its function was to train artists for the future for their company. That was really the first glimmer of real light where I was like, oh my gosh, I've discovered a secret. And, and I, I was on that trajectory for a long time. Uh, it really was a goal. They always say don't put your all your eggs in one basket, but my eggs were pretty much all in that basket because I don't know what I was going to do otherwise. I mean, I had no other plan. <laughs> so it was, a, it was an all or nothing thing for me. And it took some time and it took some work, but I got there. Sometimes that that direct focus, you know, is is beneficial. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, that exactly. determination and kind of being deliberate about it, you know. I, and I had a lot of, you know, look, my parents were were very encouraging. My family was encouraging. I had teachers all through school that they obviously saw my interest in art, and mm -hmm. they 
they, they saw that I had some sort of proclivity for it. I look back at some of that old artwork from when I was in school every now and then, and I think, why did these people encourage me? You know? <laughs> because you, you certainly look at student artwork compared to when you get older, and you think, oh, wow, I wasn't as good as I thought I was. But I guess comparatively, I had a talent, and uh, they encouraged me. And then when, when I got to Lamar, the biggest thing that happened to me, and actually one of the most formative to this day, one of the most formative people I ever met, was Professor Jerry Newman, sure. who you know is a legend at, at Lamar, and he he took me under his wing when I was going to school there. I graduated high school in '78, graduated from French high school. I started going to Lamar, and he really I met him after I had tried twice to get into Cal Arts, and he was this sort of tall, big. A little bit hard to approach, kind of intimidating person, and I considered him sort of famous because in Beaumont he was. Yeah. And I finally worked up the bravery to walk up to him and introduce myself and tell him what I wanted to do. And he sparked an interest in that, and he really, really helped me develop a portfolio that that got me into Cal Arts eventually, and even got me a scholarship. And uh, I would say that he was as important as anyone else in, in, in my growth and, and, you know, pursuing my career, he, he played a huge part, and I still, I still take advice he gave me. Jerry Newman did not let me get away with, with shortcuts um, in order to make me understand the level of effort it was going to take and the time it was going to take. And I think it was a test on Jerry's part. Um, he, I, I went to his art room, and he, I walked in one day, and he had five empty blank 100, I'm sorry, 500 sheet per tablet um, sketchbooks, and they were on a stack, and he had some Sharpie pens, and you couldn't erase, <laughs> <laughs> and he said, okay, here's your assignment, you're still going to come to my class, and you're still going to take do the life drawing classes and all the things you're supposed to do. But in the meantime, at the end of the semester, I want you to bring me these sketchbooks completely filled with quick sketches, very gestural, very painterly and fast sketches of animals and humans in action that I've observed from life. And I had to go to football games. I had to go to the zoo. I had to go to anywhere where I could find people moving around and I could sketch and he said fill these up um, and he pretty much told me if you don't do this I'm not gonna pass you <laughs> and I was like I've never failed an art class in my life so I uh, I went out and every weekend and every chance I got I had to go work on that portfolio I had to work on those drawings so at the end of the semester I brought them in and they were completely full and he cleared away a whole area of his art room those beautiful big art spaces they've got there in the art, Lamar Art Department, which were, I still have never worked in better art space in my life than those life drawing rooms and those painting rooms. They're just huge and great. And he, between classes, he made me take each sketchbook one at a time and tear out all of the sketches and lay them on the floor one by one, like literally rip out the, the pages of the sketchbook and lay everything out. Wow. And we did this over a course of 
probably 10 days. And I really didn't know what he was doing, but he would look over and he would he'd walk through my drawings on the floor and he'd point and he'd say, pick that one up, pick that one up. And we marked all these drawings and we finally, after about five days, we ended up with about 25 or 30 sketches. And he said, okay, there's your portfolio for CalArts. Send those drawings, fix them up, clean them up, put them in mats and do what you got to do, but send that to CalArts and let's see what they say. And that's how I got the scholarship. He picked out the, the 25 best drawings out of, I guess, 2,500 drawings. Uh, wow. <laughs> and wow. Um, that was the, oh, wait, no, 250. My math is horrible. Anyway, you'll get it. Um, I think it was doing yeah, a lot. <laughs> it was a lot of drawings. He was doing a lot of curating there. <laughs> yeah, and he, um, he taught me then, and that, that really is what he taught me about the, the importance of quantity and quality and only picking the very best of what only putting your very best foot forward there were drawings that i liked and he would say it's not good enough you may like it but it's not that good of a drawing and he would not let me put it in and and it was it was hard but i learned later in life that it's always like that you you make a movie you you do anything creative and you're not going to get it in one shot, and you're not going to get it overnight. It's, it's not something that just happens. And if you think that is what's going on, you're kidding yourself. <laughs> so I don't approach anything ever thinking it's going to be an easy job because there's never anything worth doing that was something you could just, you know, dash off. There's, there's more behind it than that. Um, and so, you know, that's probably one of the most important lessons, work ethic, professionally and artistically, that I've ever learned. And I learned it, fortunately, at a very young age because of him. That's fantastic. That's a long story, but it's the truth. <laughs> well, no, no, it's great. And, and I mean, and then, I mean, and his seeing that and editing that for you and compiling that got you CalArt. So, I mean, you know, that was... Yeah, and it was the... You know, it was the tipping point um, that that really changed everything. Um, and I remember, I remember the day that I had I had gotten other rejection notices from CalArts, so I knew what they looked like. I knew they were just a thin envelope. <laughs> and then one day I'm home by myself, and the mail comes, and then this big, thick, thick envelope comes from CalArts. And it had stamped on it, you know, don't forget, um, enroll, you know, uh, orientation, April, blah, blah, blah. And I, I was like, what? <laughs> and I knew before I even opened the envelope that this envelope was different than the others I'd gotten. Hmm. And uh, it was an acceptance letter and a scholarship notice. And I was, you know, it, that's probably as good a moment of, as I've ever had in my life. <laughs> <laughs> was getting that. I, I didn't come from a family that was particularly academically minded. They were smart and intelligent people, but intuitively, not educationally. I, we just didn't... Going to college at that time, we were just not a family that thought a lot about it. It wasn't priority. So I think that for me, it was, it was something I hadn't even really ever considered the importance of. And I... I do understand it, and I always have now. When 
you see these commercials or anything with people getting acceptance letters and everyone's happy. I didn't know what that meant before. Right. <laughs> and I learned that day. I guess that you kind of sense the fact that this is where you needed to be. And, and yes, people that are working here are going to go and make <laughs> make films. They're going to be making yeah. these features, you know. Well, yeah, it was an interesting time to come into the business. Or when I went to CalArts at that time, you know, Disney and the animation business in general was a bit in a slump. There was not a lot. There weren't a lot of jobs. So when I went to CalArts, um, I would say my class at CalArts, each year they admitted at that time maybe 30 people. And that was 30 people a year. And you went through a four-year program where you learned the basics of animation all the way through making your own short film. And then Cal Disney would judge. Sometimes Disney would hire people out of the school, sometimes right. not. And we, we all started in my class in 1980. It was really a, a, a low period for animation. There wasn't much going on. Disney didn't make a lot of movies at that time. They sort of, they were sort of this happy-go-lucky studio that Walt Disney had died several years before in the in '66, and the studio had taken on sort of this. I believe they were resting on their laurels after all those decades, and so they weren't making very interesting films, and it was a a very quiet period. A lot so, of live action. A lot of live action was happening, huh? Too. They were doing yeah, a lot of live yeah, action just, stuff. Just then. in general, it was. Yeah. It was a. It was not a time when animation was the focus. So, you know, none of us really knew where this was going to lead, because it certainly didn't have the vibrance that it had when we, when it was in its heyday. And so, when we were all going to class, I remember when I walked in on my first day, I saw these other people, and we started talking. And I realized, oh my gosh, we all have almost the same story to tell. We're all just a bunch of kids who like to draw and make up stories. And we found this niche interest. And we all want to do the same thing. And there's 30 of us in this wide world. We have, we have found ourselves all drawn to this one place where it's our only hope. So once again, I was like, all my eggs are in this basket, and I've, I've, now I've got competition at CalArts. I end up in the summer, I, I somehow landed a, a job doing really menial work in an in a, um, animation studio, very small, doing an independent film. And that was my first on-the-job training, trying to learn how to draw those things. And luckily by that time, I had some skills. So that sort of was my first job that, that sort of was on the job training and I got in there. But ironically, and this kind of, I have to backtrack a little, a lot of the money I made um, when I was going through school, even in Beaumont, even when I was at Lamar, and this was also due to Jerry Newman's influence, I started doing caricatures of people on the street at art festivals. Oh, that, sure. Yeah. You know, I remember Beaumont had all, the Nature's River Festival and Several parks would have art festivals, and Parkdale Mall in those days would have like a big art festival every year. And I, um, I would do caricatures of people for extra money. And I started putting myself through school, supplementing my income with uh, 
doing that. And so that was a really fun way to get my cartooning skills right. And it made some money for me. And one day, when I was at CalArts, I still was going, and on weekends, I would find a gig now and then to go make some extra money. And I was at a chili cook-off <laughs> in Southern California. And this guy walked up to me behind me, and he was watching me draw. And he said, do you ever, are you, do you ever storyboard for animation? And I remember I, I was looked up at him, and I said, well, I never have professionally, but because storyboarding is basically where you you take a script and you interpret it in drawings, one drawing at a time, kind of like a comic strip. And you tell the entire movie in pictures, and that's how they plan animated films. And so I told him, I've never done it professionally, but I understand it. And he took my card, and he goes, you know what, I'm going to hold on to this because... Um, I, I may need your services someday. And I said, sure. So I forgot all about it. And about six months later, while I'm working at this studio, and before CalArts was going back in session for what would be my third year, this guy called and said, hi, um, I'm working over here at Disney, and we've got this project we're putting together, and I need a storyboard artist, and we don't have a lot of money right now. We've got a low budget, but they're going to let me hire one person. I'd like to interview you. And so I brought in my portfolio, showed my stuff, and I was hired on the spot, and suddenly I was at Disney. Wow. And um, all because of a chili cook-off. <laughs> <laughs> but I was, the timing of that was so perfect because I had had two years at CalArts, two years at Lamar, it essentially came to four years of school. A lot of students actually ended up not finishing at, at CalArts because they would get hired in Los Angeles in different aspects of the movie industry. And in those days, if you got a job, you took it because there weren't many jobs to have. Sure. And so that was sheer luck or whatever you want to call it. But that was how I got started in the animation business at Disney was because I was I was out there drawing in front of people and I just the right person having to come by. So it's like, yeah, it, those kind of stories like that, you know, it's uh, I get that's the kind of the, the, the entrance way into there. And so, <laughs> yeah, and, and it's you know to this day, there's always that. This is something that's really important that I tell a lot of people who want to do a lot of things that I talk to. And, you know, there's this saying that in Hollywood it's all about timing. I don't, I don't think that any story I've got exemplifies that than, than the story of how I started work because um, everyone that I know that has worked at Disney or has been an actor or has gone out, it really is. It, it's 60% it's, it's timing. You can have the talent. You can have all the ambition you can have everything you're supposed to have but if you're not you just have to go out there and plug away and try it and cast your net and hope that the timing is going to be right where where that prize fish gets in that net yeah. and you take advantage of it and you strike while the iron's hot and i was in a situation where certainly going back to school was going to be expensive and 
I had a scholarship, but I was not, I was on my own, you know, in regard to how I financed my college between student loans and scholarships and, and, and work-study jobs and doing caricatures. And so the timing for me was, look, I better take this. No, not one person, even my counselor at CalArts said, don't waste this opportunity. You've got to do it. Yeah. And uh, so I got four years of college under me, but no diploma, which is okay. I've never actually needed it, but I'm glad I, I'm glad I did um, have those four years because I would not have been ready right out of high school to have even gone to CalArts, I don't think. I would have been ready. I was ready to be a student and learn more. I was not ready to be a professional. And when I was ready, it, I still had a lot to learn. I was still I was 23 years old when I started at CalArts. I mean, I, at Disney, I'm sorry. I was 23 years old when I started at Disney, and I still had an ocean of things to learn. And I would say my entire... 20s were spent, I call it grad school. <laughs> I think my entire decade was grad school for me. Um, slow and sure and learning the ropes and learning the politics and learning how to act, how to be, what to say, what not to say, what to avoid. Uh, just like any career, you, you spend a lot of time navigating that and you see people succeeding and failing all around you and you take notes and you watch and you try to implement what you think is the right way to do it or the wrong way to do it uh, and it's a it's all part of the process of elimination in in life and reality and career and that's all just as real in the animation business as it is anywhere else um, you have to be good at what you do or you're not needed, <laughs> and and that's a fact. It was a hard fact um, because there always was and always will be a part of me that is still just this kid who likes to draw and make up stories, and and I have to I have to keep that kid contained <laughs> because that kid can get me in trouble if I'm not careful. Because it's, it's it's about so much more than that, and then at the same time, it's all about that. So uh, you learn that when you get older. Now that I'm going to be sixty, I I can look back and say all this. <laughs> but uh, luckily, something kept me on the right path, and I've continued to thrive and continued to work, and it's been a rewarding career. But it was not, you know. A lot of times, people will ask. You must love your job. Gosh, it must be so fun all the time to, you know, to just draw characters. And, and it is. And it's fun on so many levels for so many reasons that I could talk all day about. But there still is the work aspect. And still, there still are days that are really difficult. When you come into Disney, it's not long before you're on these real highlights of Disney changing. They are, I guess we're coming out of a slump, right, as far as their animation. Well, play. They were making these high, great works, and you were able to work on those projects. Well, once again, yeah. that's, that goes back to that magical... If there's anything magical in Hollywood, it's timing, because there was no way to plan that for my, for, on my part. Right. There, um, my, co my colleagues and I, my peers, 
different people from CalArts were coming out um, and, and getting into the workforce after me and with me. And we all were these young, fresh-faced kids. And we entered into the business when it was kind of dying. And then something happened, 1983, 1984, big shakeup at Disney, complete takeover of the company and changing of the guard. And that's when, I think it was 83, 85, I really don't remember the exact year, but that's when Jeffrey Katzenberg okay. came in with Michael Eisner okay. and uh, sort of revamped Disney. And Jeffrey Katzenberg looked around and didn't understand animation, but he looked around and he, he's a very intelligent, smart guy. And I, I know Jeffrey... Well, I've worked with him for years, and he, uh, he assessed the situation, and he taught himself about animation. And he looked around, and he said, okay, why isn't Disney doing princess movies? That's what has, you know, Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, right. Snow White, yeah. Alice in Wonderland. Where, where are these movies that are such a staple? Yeah. They had not made one in so long. Right. And... Uh, that's when Little Mermaid really got the steam behind it. And then simultaneously, in the live-action realm, this really smart guy named Robert Zemeckis had done the Back to the Future movies. Sure. And he wanted to do this movie called Roger Rabbit. And so that came out, and it was this amazing hybrid of animation with live-action. And it was done you know, beautifully. And suddenly these movies were... Animation was attracting adults. The Little Mermaid was treated like a Broadway show. It wasn't treated like an animated feature. Yeah. Howard Ashman and Alan Menken came in and created a story with music and songs that you really felt. And then there was Beauty and the Beast. And I was able to work on, as a story artist and a visual development artist, on Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast. And those were those were iconic moments in my career and they were wonderful pieces to be able to look back on and be excited about. And no one knew that it was going to turn into what it did. Right. Um, I know that I did not work on Oliver and company, but that was also another one that was one of the first films to go out in theaters and attract a different kind of attention because it had Billy Joel and Bette Midler and, and Jeffrey started paying attention to the star, you know, the marquee names. And all those things happened in the 80s that now today we, we think it's commonplace. But that's all because that was Jeffrey Katzenberg sitting back and saying, how can we mainstream animation? We don't want to close this division down. We don't want it to die. This is Disney. Yeah. And, and Roy Disney, the nephew of Walt Disney, had insisted when they came into the company that the animation department was never going to shut down. So it was really, I attribute that to Jeffrey Katzenberg really just jumping in and saying, okay, they've made it my job, so I'm going to do this. And he developed a love for animation as a result of that. And, and I was able to be there and witness this. Another very interesting thing that was going on in 1983, when I first started, we were working on a movie called The Black Cauldron, which yes. uh, was not very popular at the time. It, it was, was like a very difficult dark. movie. Yeah. It took forever for them to make. Oh, wow. 
Uh, it took like 10 years to get that movie finished. Oh, my and gosh. I came on to like the last year and a half of it. And, oh, wow. And I was just drawing little, I, mean, I, I didn't do anything iconic in that movie. I was a complete assistant uh, fixing things, you know, helping them clean up things. Okay. But uh, in one shot of the movie, I remember they took us and showed us, the whole studio got together in the theater in the studio theater at Disney, and they showed us this test they were doing because there was one shot where this big, giant iron cauldron was going to rise out of the ground and float. And it was done with this computer wireframe test. And none of us even knew what that was. And it, it was really good at using geometric shapes. And, and they showed this one shot, which eventually got completely covered over with special effects and smoke, and, but it's there. And it was the first time that any of us had seen this thing called computer animation. Oh. And I just remember, wow, it looks so real and it looks so rigid and it's great. And at that time, I think the general not feeling was, this will be great in animated movies for buildings and perspective. It'll really help us with camera it will help us with mechanical objects and hard objects with hard surfaces. And so it was really treated like a tool and less of a creative thing than an aid to get things to look more dimensional. So that was really exciting, and that was sort of the end of it. And that's where everyone sort of just said, okay, yeah, that's great. It was around 1990, and I was working at Disney. I'd finished Beauty and the Beast. I'd finished what I was doing on that. And then Jeffrey Katzenberg left Disney <laughs> after the success of Lion King. There were conflicts between him and Michael Eisner, and Jeffrey left Disney and very quickly formed this place called DreamWorks. And he was calling everybody he knew, and he called me and uh, made me the right offer at the right time in my life. And I took the job, moved to L.A. as head of story on Prince of Egypt, which was another, uh, you know, just big gamble of a movie, epic film. It was Steven Spielberg's idea to make the movie, to try to do something more epic than had ever been done. So it was a very ambitious project, and I think I'll always sort of look at Prince of Egypt as this sort of flawed masterpiece. It's sort of the way people feel about the original Fantasia, sure. where it didn't really catch on with audiences when it first came out. But it is, it is such an artistic achievement um, and a very risky film to put out there and hope that everyone's point of view follows it. I mean, it was a, it was a, there's a lot about doing anything from the Old Testament or New Testament. You have to, you have to walk a fine line to make sure that you're, 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 you're telling the story in a way that as many people believe, people's beliefs as possible. Uh, so it was very difficult, right. and and being head of story on that was a daunting task. But it was it was a great experience, and the artists were brought in from all over the world. I got to go to Egypt for two weeks on an archaeological um, saw every major archaeological site. Oh wow! Uh, I mean, there's so much to talk about that. Starting at DreamWorks and this hugely ambitious studio, at that time it was kind of beyond belief. I mean to to have this, this guy, Jeffrey Katzenberg, team up with Steven Spielberg and David Geffen and gather 
so much funding so quickly and be able to to be part of something that was just the most ambitious undertaking. And it, it, it's, it's quite a story how it all played out eventually, but in those early days, it was probably as exciting a prospect as any of us ever had. It changed my life. So I was working on Prince of Egypt, and about a year and a half into it, a story was sort of starting to kind of wrap. Uh, Jeffrey asked me to go play around with this idea that he's got from this book that he'd been having trouble with called Shrek. And it was a tiny little book by William Stieg. I mean, I think it's 24 pages long. Wow. And they had been doing a lot of development on it. So I developed a lot of the first Shrek. And so he kept a team on it. And then he said to me, "Um, I need your help on another movie that we are making. And it's called Spirit. And it's another big, ambitious project. And I need you to go help on that. Impossible movie. Asking animators to draw horses... Horses are the most difficult single animal to draw and get right. They are a complex, you would not believe how complex a horse is to even make it look like a horse. I'm not kidding. Wow. And I can't, And then you have to make it like run realistically. Oh, oh and the animators study kinesiology. <laughs> we all were taking equine classes. I mean, I know that there are a lot of complicated animals out there, and there's a lot of things about anatomy that I don't know. It was an insane undertaking to make spirit. And it wasn't my idea, it was Jeffrey's. It was an insane undertaking to, to try to find a way to make herds of horses using the computer. The combination of computer animation and drawn animation has never been done again to the degree that Spirit did. But Spirit is technically more complicated than probably any animated film ever made wow. because of those factors. The elements. I mean, I could I could sit with a, I could sit with you and go through it, and say, okay, see this shot, that's CG, that's a painted background, that's hand drawn, that's computer animation. Everything is. It, it's really kind of a beyond the belief. It's beyond belief that we actually made it and that it actually looked good. Um, it's a very simple story, but it was my first time directing. It was wonderful to once again, to shepherd all these artists and be part of something and try to keep the big picture in mind. But I was literally so over my head, technically, that I had to just bow to the, the people who knew what they were doing. We would all talk about what we wanted, long meetings, how we wanted it to look, what we needed to happen. But I would have no idea how these guys were going to go do it. <laughs> and uh, they would show me results, and it would just be spectacular. And we implemented those things in, and we made the movie. And, you know, it was nominated for the Oscar for Best Animated Feature. It, it, it had a moderate success. It wasn't, at the time, it didn't take the world by storm. But now it's the movie, after all these years, 17 years ago now, it's the movie that I am asked the most about, and it's the movie that I hear the most about. People walk up to me and say it was their favorite movie. I've heard that countless times over everything I've worked on, even Shrek 2. It was trying to make you feel like you were sort of seeing those paintings come to life. And we felt that 2D was the most appropriate way. Plus, because of the horse aspect and the fur and all the things we needed, we just weren't ready 
for a, 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 a realistic-looking horse, it, we were just it just wasn't ready for CG. It was too complicated for it to look good. CG wasn't there yet. And so that's why it was made the way it was made in that combination. What are some of the main things that are different about directing an animated feature film than directing a um, live-action film? For me, you know, directing an animated feature, you are the person in charge of executing all the creative decisions, everything. You are the one who is in charge of making sure that everything stays consistent. You're in charge of making sure that all the artists are informed and communicated to as to what they're, they need to do. The biggest difference in terms of the actual hands-on job, I think that live-action film, depending if it's an independent film, depending how big the budget is, you have less control the bigger the budget. And that's true in animation as well. The more money that is being spent by the studio, the more the studio is nervous about what's being done with their money. The less money, the more the studio is willing to let the filmmaker um, do something with this, and let's see what you can, let's see how you, how much you can exploit, and make the best of this movie. If people walk out of the theater with learning something or having a message delivered to them, that's fantastic. Entertain first, teach second, because people go to the movies to sit in the dark and escape for a little while and watch something, let something transport them. Uh, it's what I go to the movies for, too. It's what I try to help perpetuate. That's my, uh, that's my clothing statement. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Kelly, thanks for joining us on Biolands at KBLU. Oh, I am happy to have done it. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed Jason's interview with the late Kelly Asbury. Bayou Lands Talks is produced in the studios of 91.3 KVLU Public Radio in Beaumont, Texas, by Shannon Harris and Jason M. Miller. For more information and to stream KVLU online, visit kvlu.org. And remember to subscribe to this podcast wherever you find your podcasts.